In recent decades, ethicists, clinicians, and policymakers have grappled with how decisions should be made for patients who've lost decision-making capacity. Many widely supported approaches to this problem haven't worked as planned, and ethical guidelines have evolved in response. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Bernard Lowe, a professor of medicine emeritus and director of the Program in Medical Ethics Emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Lowe has written a perspective article about the ethical and legal framework outlining how to make decisions for patients who've lost decision-making capacity as part of the journal's new series on the fundamentals of medical ethics. Dr. Lowe, in your perspective article, you write that the 1990 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Cruzan versus Director, Missouri Department of Health, sparked discussions about how to make decisions for patients who've lost decision-making capacity. So how were such decisions typically made before that case? Before that case, there was great uncertainty. And in fact, more than one hospital asked physicians and families to go to court to get an order to discontinue life-sustaining treatment. Could have been a ventilator, but in the most celebrated cases, they involved artificial feeding in patients who had lost their consciousness and were permanently unconscious. And then what were the facts of the Cruzan case? The Cruzan case involved a young woman who, after an auto accident, was found by police and paramedics in cardiac arrest. They resuscitated her, but she never regained consciousness. Several years later, her parents were told by all the physicians on her case that she was permanently unconscious and was not expected to regain consciousness. The family deliberated and decided based on what she had said previously, and therefore what she wanted, that she would want the feeding tube and artificial nutrition discontinued. The hospital required a court order, and the case eventually went through the Missouri Supreme Court all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then what was the court's decision? The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that under the Constitution, a state like Missouri could set very strict standards on what evidence could be used to justify a decision to withdraw artificial nutrition from a person in a permanently unconscious state. It said, the Supreme Court said that nothing in the Constitution limited the power of states to enact very strict standards for the evidence that was required to make such a momentous decision. This ruling sparked not only a lot of discussion, but a lot of consternation among some people that loving family members, in this case the parents, could not decide based on what the patient had told them and what they believed the patient would have wanted or not wanted. So how then did state legislators and the medical field respond to this court decision? What changed after the ruling? Well, the immediate thing was that policymakers in the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives figured out how to try to encourage patients to give the kind of evidence that would be required in states like Missouri to withdraw or withhold interventions in various conditions, including a persistent vegetative state. Subsequently, other measures took hold on a state-by-state basis Many states in the next 10 to 15 years passed laws allowing patients when competent to appoint someone, usually a close family member, to make decisions for them if they became unable to do so. And these 
legal devices enabled family members to withdraw or withhold life-sustaining treatment according to what the patient had previously said were their best interests. Now, that wasn't enough. It turned out that very few people completed these legal forms. Uh, there are a lot of formalities, such as witnesses and notarization. And legislatures, under intense public opinion and lobby, then went even further. States then allowed patients to appoint in an oral statement to physicians who they wanted to appoint as their surrogate decision maker if they couldn't make decisions. And then finally, most states established a default hierarchy of who could make decisions for patients who were unable to do so and had not previously given advance directives or living wills or clearly indicated what they would want in that situation. So from the Supreme Court allowing states to set very high standards for what statements and documentation was needed, to states then taking their own power to craft laws to make it much easier for patients to appoint someone to make decisions for them. It took a lot of public discussion, a lot of lobbying of state legislatures on a state-by-state -state basis to basically blunt and reverse the thrust of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision. What's the current thinking about how decisions should be made for patients who've lost decision-making capacity? Who should make the decisions and what factors should be considered? Well, it continues to evolve, and I think this is a good example of how difficult ethical dilemmas, which were novel at the time, how standards, ethical standards and legal standards have evolved to keep up with empirical information of what processes worked and what didn't, and also revisions in how we think about key issues, key ethical issues. So there are a lot of intermediate steps. One drive was to make it easier for patients to declare who should make decisions and what they might want. Documentation got simpler and simpler. Most states now have one-page forms called pulsed forms where they can indicate who they would want to make decisions and what they would want done in certain situations. It's particularly these pulsed forms particularly useful if a patient wishes to decline cardiopulmonary resuscitation and there's no chance for the first responders, emergency first responders, to talk to anybody about the decision. These have also had their flaws. And the current thinking now is these decisions need to be made at the time when the crucial decision has to be made involving physicians and family members to engage in a series of discussions about what the options are, what the benefits and risks are, and what would be best for the patient as well as what the patient would want. We've now accepted the fact that the patient may not have thought about the situation. The patient's preferences might have changed since she last spoke. She might not have anticipated the current situation. And family members have to make decisions based on a lot more than just what the patient had previously said. And now I think public policy and law is recognizing the complexity of these decisions and supporting families who struggle with these very, very difficult decisions.
So finally, I want to explore that a little bit further. How should clinicians go about helping surrogates make these decisions? What kinds of conversations should occur and when should they occur? And that's a focus of current active research. And again, that's change. We used to think that these decisions could be fairly well settled in advance. And now the thinking is that we certainly should try and prepare family members and patients for the discussions that will take place. And the emphasis now is on working with surrogates to help them understand the issues and to figure out ways of offering them support when the decisions come up in reality. And that's decision support, emotional support, and communication support. At the same time, there's been an emphasis on helping doctors have these conversations better. And there's been a lot of training on how to talk to families, and a lot of it centers on helping them understand the situation, giving them the emotional support they need to sort of deal with a terrible medical situation, and also helping families towards a decision. Very often, families say, well, why don't you give it a try? And if in a couple of days things are getting much better, terrific, keep going. But if things aren't getting better, then let's talk again and we have to figure out when we would want to stop and figuring out how long to go on with something that's not really working as well as planned is a tough issue for both families and frankly for physicians also. I think this is an interesting example of how people with really different backgrounds, beliefs, about religion, about the role of government, have come together to reach an agreement that these decisions are best made by the family members and trusted physicians. And it's taken quite a while to go back to that fundamental emphasis on the doctor, and in this case, the families of patients who can't decide for themselves, and setting up both the legal framework, the ethical framework, but also the clinical policies and training to make those difficult discussions work. Thank you, Dr. Lowe.